Welcome to the Loma Linda University Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you will be blessed by the message. So I'm going to ask you if you would take out your phones and point them at the QR code and follow the directions to get to our poll for today. So we're going to take a poll, and I'm going to ask you this favor. You're going to be three, given three options, strongly agree, neutral, or strongly disagree. Here's the favor I'm asking of you. Answer the questions the way you really are, not the way you wish you were. And nobody's going to know. It's anonymous. We're all tempted to answer it in the way we wish we were. But let's stay away from that and answer it the way we really are. All right, six statements to which you're asked to respond. So statement number one, I must have everyone's love and approval. I must have everyone's love and approval. All right, well, we're running, well, it's changing a little bit. Strongest is in disagree, and then followed by neutral, and next by agree. All right, kind of an even division there. Very good, thank you. Second question, in marriage, if it takes hard work, we must not be right for each other. In marriage, if it takes hard work, we must not be right for each other. Interesting. So strongly disagree is way out in front. The other two are a little bit closer to each other. Very good. Number three, because I'm a Christian, God will protect me from pain and suffering. Wow, that didn't take long. Strongly disagree is way out in front, followed by agree and then neutral. Give it another minute or two as you continue to answer. Staying about the same. All right? Very good. Number four, it is my Christian duty to meet all the needs of others. It is my Christian duty to meet all the needs of others. Again, strongly disagree is way out in front. Neutral and then strongly agree. Okay. Staying about the same now. Number five, a good Christian doesn't feel angry, anxious, or depressed. A good Christian doesn't feel angry, anxious. Oh, my goodness. That's about as high as we can get, almost. Uh, We have 93%. Very good. Strongly disagree, strongly agree. No, it's actually neutral that follows. And the last one, God can't use me unless I'm spiritually strong. God can't use me unless I'm spiritually strong. Okay, so very high on the disagree. The other two are closer together. Okay, now you, you, can, put your, you can put your phones down, and we'll come back to that after a bit. So we're in a series entitled, You Are His Personal Concern. We're talking about the question of whether or not it might be possible to live without fear, unhealthy fear. So as we've been talking about that, we come today to a time when we're going to talk about our minds and the, the, the way our minds and our thoughts play into that very question. But before we do that, I want to read two passages of Scripture, just two texts, say a few things about each text, and then I want to share with you a model that has been very helpful to me over the years. First one is in the wisdom literature of Scripture. In Proverbs, 
Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23. Now, before we read it, I want to say something about the term that's the important term in this passage, and that is the term heart. We are prone, when we think about heart, to think about one of two things, to think about being in love with someone or to think about our heart health, heart attack, cardiac care, those kinds of things. Both very valid, but in the ancient world, in fact, in the world of the wise man who pens this, the heart is kind of the center of the person, the seat of the person's thoughts and beliefs and emotions and therefore actions and life in the world. The heart is at the center of it all. With that in mind, notice what the passage says. It's a very short proverb, but it's packed with meaning. Guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. Guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. So what is that saying? I want to read to you some words from a, an interesting commentary, a commentary written primarily for Bible translators, people who are seeking to translate the text of Scripture into a new receptor language. And this was written to help the translators as they sorted through the original languages and especially some of the nuances of different terms. It's in that context that this is written. Keep your heart, or in the version we read today, guard your heart, means to guard your thoughts. In some languages, this is expressed as watch your mind or take care of your thoughts. The New Jerusalem Bible translates it more than all else, keep watch over your heart. And the New Jewish Publication Society translation of the Hebrew Bible has more than all that you guard, guard your mind. We may also say the most important thing that you can do is be careful what you think, or the most important thing is to think good thoughts. The thought expressed here is that what people think, what is in their minds, determines how they will act. The thought is that the person's life is somehow determined by the thoughts stored in the heart or mind. Now, I think based on that, we could say that a simple reality of this passage would be to say what we think given opportunity becomes how we act. In other words, the power of our thinking determines what we do in actual life, in the world around us. It determines how we behave. But I want to suggest that we can take this one more step today, not just to say that what we think determines how we act, but secondly, to say that what we think creates how we feel that it is that important. What we think creates what we feel. And it's for that reason that the wise man is saying, above all else, guard your heart. It's going to be formative in how you act. It's going to be deeply influential in how you feel. So that's the first text. The second text, we go to the New Testament. Paul's writings, Philippians chapter 4, it is, I would say, Paul's quintessential statement on worry and anxiety and fear and how we are to respond to that in our lives. In fact, here in this passage, he echoes some of what Jesus said when Jesus said, don't worry about tomorrow. It's as though Jesus is saying, many of you will be tempted to live regretfully in the past or anxiously in the future, and you'll miss out living in the moment. So don't worry about tomorrow. So Paul here takes up that similar thought 
and says it this way, Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. So what is Paul saying there? The passage again is Philippians 4, 6, and 7. It seems to me that if we remember to bathe the entire thought in the juices of gratitude, because he's very clear on the gratitude that we ought to express, that we ought to feel, that Paul is saying three things. First of all, he's saying worry about nothing. That one's pretty clear. Next, he's saying pray about everything. And then next he's saying, if I can worry about nothing and pray about everything, then others will not be able to explain my peace. It will be beyond understanding. So to a church that is likely facing persecution, likely facing very hard times, Paul says, worry about nothing, pray about everything, and then the people around you will look at your circumstances and will see your peace and will say, that makes no sense. Somebody in that circumstance, somebody facing those situations, ought to be filled with anxiety. How are they at peace? Well, because with an attitude of gratitude, you're worrying about nothing and praying about everything. Now, it's right about there that if you're anything like me, you say, that sounds beautiful. How in the world am I supposed to do that? How? And over the last two or three weeks, that has been the question that has kind of been driving what we've been talking about because we've seen some great principles from Scripture. But they come down to that question, how? How am I supposed to worry about nothing? I have a little bit more control praying about everything, but how am I supposed to worry about nothing? Is there a way that I can grow into a life that has increasing levels of emotional tranquility? Is that possible? So I want to share a model with you. It's not original with me. This comes out of the thinking of cognitive behavioral therapy, a branch known as rational emotive behavior therapy that used to be known as rational emotive therapy. So all that may not be all that important because you're going to get Randy's version of it anyway. But I can tell you it has been helpful to me. And maybe someone here today will find it equally helpful. So when it comes to our feelings, how we feel, especially negative emotions, there are many different answers to how they come to be, how they get created. Why does somebody feel angry? Why does somebody feel fearful, etc.? I want to share, you one, share with you one way of thinking about that. Many of us think that it is our circumstances, the situations of our lives, what we're facing at any given moment, that create what we feel. Right? We betray that sometimes by the way we refer to it. For example, a pretty common one is to use the word make or makes. Have you noticed that? You make me so mad. Make. 
I don't have any choice in it. You show up, I get mad. It's just the way it happens. That creates this. Or, oh, when that happens, I get so anxious. I just, it fills me with anxiety. It makes me so fearful. Again, makes. But some people came along and said, well, wait a minute, wait, 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 wait. I'm not sure that that's always true because you can have those similar situations or circumstances in a range of people's lives and end up with very different emotional responses. So I'm not sure that we can actually say that and this. I mean, say, for example, you're on your way to work, you're running late, you run into the grocery store, you've got to buy something, they're having a celebration of somebody's birthday party at work, you race in, go to the aisles, grab the two things, race out, your whole mind is focused on the express lane. You get there and there's like six people and it's like, ugh. But it's better than the others because it has that sign up there, 15 items or less, cash only. Right? You quickly scan the line, nobody has much of anything except the old codger up front. Got 50 things in that cart. And he's trying to write a check. Do you remember what checks are? They were on pieces of paper like this? Trying to write a check. And you can just feel it building, just boiling. And you keep looking, come on, come on. And, you're, and then you notice someone you work with, going to be at the same party at work, about three people in front of you in line. So you're trying to get their attention, but they're too focused up front or off in their own world. So finally, that transaction finishes, the rest are boom, 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 and you're out in your car, race to work, get to your workplace, run into the person who was in line ahead of you and say, doesn't that just make your blood boil? And they say, what? That, that guy in line trying to run. Oh, yeah, yeah, forgot that. Um, I mean, you know, it's just people. And you're like, I'm about to have a coronary, and they seem to... Have, haven't even noticed it. What in the world is going on? So, this thinking, this model says that our circumstances are not nearly as influential on our feelings as are our beliefs. Now, you can use different words for beliefs. You can say self-talk, you can say thoughts, assumptions. You can use different words for that. But the bottom line is, what this says is, this is what's influential in how you feel. Your circumstances get filtered down through your beliefs and then are fleshed out in a feeling. So that regardless of the good or bad circumstances you face, the way that you can improve your emotional state is to change what you think. Or another way of saying that is, above all else, guard your heart. Now, in this context, I think there was a deep spiritual, ethical component to what the wise man was saying. I would argue that there's also an emotional element to it as well. That what we think does have deep influence on how we feel. So, this becomes the critical piece. Example, years ago when I had the privilege of working with grief recovery groups, I can remember sitting in circles, circles of loss, circles where there was deep pain, and somebody would say something like this, since Jim died, I feel like I can never be happy again. 
And all around the circle, people would say, oh, yes, it's exactly what I feel. I can so relate to that. And there would be a sense of comfort that was shared around the circle that was beautiful to behold. Now, I would not have done then what I'm about to do here. Been much more careful and gentle. But here, we don't have a lot of time. So, here's what I would say. To say, I feel like I can never be happy again is not a feeling. That's not a feeling. That's a thought. That's a belief. And you say two things. How do you know and why does it matter? Well, how you know. Uh, here's one simple way. It's not the only way, but one simple way of determining that. If you make a statement, I feel like I can never be happy again, and you take out that word feel and you insert the word think, and it still makes sense, it's a thought, not a feeling. I think I can never be happy again. I disagree with the statement, but the statement makes sense. It's a thought. It's a belief. So that's happening at this level. Why does it matter? Because if your thought about this circumstance is that you honestly can never be happy again, what do you think you're going to feel? You are going to feel increasingly depressed because there is no way out of this. But what if we were to nudge that thought in a more healthy direction? After all, that's exactly what this attempts to do. It says there are two kinds of thoughts or beliefs. There are rational and irrational. Now, you can use different terms or names. You can say healthy and unhealthy, helpful and unhelpful, reasonable and unreasonable. You can use different, but, but that's the term that's often used, rational and irrational. How can you tell if a thought, a belief, is rational or irrational? The way you do it is simply to ask yourself the question, is it true? Is it true? And by true here, I mean, is it true to life? Can I make this statement and then point to all kinds of examples in life that bear it out? If I can, it's probably true. It's probably rational. But if I make the statement, and most of the examples I can find in life do not bear it out, it's probably irrational. I want to suggest to you that doing this process is part of guarding your heart. So, the statement. I think I can never be happy again. Think of the people, and you know, sadly, many of them. I know many of them. Think of the people you know who have experienced the death of someone they love profoundly. Would it generally be true that with all those people you think of, none of them or almost none of them are ever happy again? No, that's not true. In fact, and I understand my situation is a little unique because I had the privilege of working with so many who grieved, but I could given time, point you probably to hundreds of examples of people who went through profound loss, who mourned deeply, and yet over time, with help, with support, grew into fullness of life again. In fact, had someone come up to me not all that long ago, came up, greeted me, and said, do you remember me? 
I hate that question. Do you remember me? Well, yes, I remember you. Just help me a little bit with your name and your background, your social security number, your family, where we met, what year that was, what you were doing, and what I was doing at the time. Yeah, if you can just help me with those little details. Yeah, I remember you. <laughs> Do you remember me? I said, well, I said, oh, I'll tell you. I was in the grief recovery group you led. It had been about 30 years ago. And then she started telling me the loss, and then I remembered it immediately. It's one of the worst losses I had the honor of working with during that time. I said, oh, my goodness, I absolutely do remember you. She said, it was hell. I was in a darkness the likes of which I'd never been in before. But she said, do you know what? Over time, with therapy, with the group, with a lot of mourning, with friends, I slowly came out of that darkness. And I will tell you that today, I'm a different person, but my life is full and good. <laughs> I just said, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. That that's possible. So change saying, I think I can never be happy again, to saying, I think this is going to be the hardest thing I've ever faced, and it's going to take time, and I'm going to need help. But there's a light at the end of that tunnel. Recovery in some form is possible. And if you can get to that place, then instead of feeling utter depression, you feel sadness, and you're able to mourn, and you're able to move through the process. That's an example of how our beliefs affect us. Above all things, guard your heart. It determines the course of your life. So, there are especially four different emotional experiences that we have that can be affected by irrational, illogical beliefs. Anger, guilt, depression, and anxiety. Anger, guilt, depression, and anxiety. So, if you've been feeling any of these and feeling them a lot, it's possible that the cause is this kind of belief system. Each one of these has some nuances to it. Anger tends to be created by self-talk, by thoughts, by beliefs that say someone or something is not the way it's supposed to be. The grocery store line. That's not the way this is supposed to work. What's wrong with you? Life needs to be the way it's supposed to be in order for me to be okay. Or what about that experience? You've had it. Don't lie. I've had it. You're in your car. You're, your eyes are boring a hole through the head of the driver in front of you, and you're thinking, left lane, 50 miles an hour? Seriously? You being serious right now? You know that lane right over there? That's for people like you. Get out of this lane. And you can feel the anger rising because someone or something is not the way it's supposed to be. If you need everything to be the way it's supposed to be in order to be at peace, that's going to be a problem for you consistently, regardless of the circumstances you face. Or what about guilt? Guilt tends to be created by beliefs or self-talk that says, I am not the way I'm supposed to be. A very common belief there is, I must be perfect. Now, I'm not talking here about theological perfection, though that could be entered into it as well. I'm just talking about, you know, perfect house, perfect car, 
perfect get up, perfect job, perfect spouse. Per- How's that working out for you? When you have that, I must be perfect, it creates anxiety and anger everywhere you go. And the way to determine how deeply do I believe that is not when you're sitting in a beautiful sanctuary worship service, but to think of how you respond to your imperfection when it's on display in front of others. How deeply does it hit you? So years ago, I was preaching right here. I was using as an illustration something from a book called Amusing Ourselves to Death by Neil Postman. Postman says the, the story of America can be told in the history of four cities. I forget, Boston, Philadelphia, Chicago, Las Vegas, etc. And And I was coming to, and I was going to, let me get this straight today. <laughs> I was meaning to say the city of Chicago. Now, after I'd said it, I felt something go through the congregation. And I thought, what did I? And I thought, okay, just press ahead. Just pre- they'll forget. Just press ahead. Just keep going. Keep moving. When the sermon was over, I couldn't get off the platform before Marion Wagner came up to me and said, hey, Chicago isn't that bad. And I said, oh, no, I, I didn't say it. He said, oh, yes, you did. I said, no, I didn't. He said, yes, you did. <laughs> I go home. I had something here at church. Go home that afternoon. My wife, Anita, comes out and she was, for reasons only God can explain, re-watching that sermon <laughs> on the broadcast. She came out to the garage and said, you better come in here. You're almost to Chicago. And I thought, oh, please. They're not rebroadcasting it, are they? And I go in and peer around the corner, and voila, there it is. I, it just hit me at a deep level because I've done personal battle with that lie that I must be perfect. One week, first service here, I preached, got back there to the stage, my office realized my zipper was down. And I said, I said, okay, I'm never preaching that church again. Jesus is calling me somewhere else. I can't go back in there because it hits so deep. If you have that kind of belief, I must be perfect or many other related ones, count on the fact you'll have a lot of guilt and not a little bit of anger. Depression. Depression tends to be created by catastrophizing or by overgeneralizing. This is the worst thing that's ever happened to me. Why does this always happen to me? I never get a break. This is horrible. And the more of those you say, even when nothing's happening, the more you can feel that wet blanket of depression descending on you. It just cripples you. And then the one that is our main interest, our main concern, anxiety. I want to suggest to you, it's not all, but I would say it's a lot of anxiety is created by two words, just two words. And those two words are these. What if? What if? When you feel anxious, start slowing things down. In fact, I would recommend you get a piece of paper paper so you can see the full thing. Get a piece of paper and write at the top, my what ifs. So I'm feeling anxious. What am I saying in my mind? What if we can't make the car payment? What if I get fired? What if I don't pass boards? What if the situation in the Middle East totally blows up? What if, what if, what if? And the anxiety just grows. Identify your what ifs. 
And then on another piece of paper, now take them one at a time, just start answering them. Give every possible answer from the most ludicrous to the most wise that you can possibly think of. So you're saying, you're writing up here, what if? We bought the kids tickets, we paid for the Airbnb, we've gotten time off work, we've rented a car that will fit all of us, we're all headed to Mammoth, and there's no snow. What if we get up there and there's no snow? And it's starting to create that anxiety. And you know who it is in your family who does this? Don't say anything. You know it is in your family who does this? What if, what if, what if? And then just start answering them. Okay, we'll play table games. We'll go out to eat. We'll rent bikes. We'll go to the lake. We'll, and just start answering in every possible way you can. Because as you answer in every possible way, you create options. And when you create options, you have power. And people who have power don't feel anxious and fearful. And the best way to get power is right here. Pray. Pray about it. God, I don't know what you want in this situation, but I'm going to bring my worry to you. I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to surrender it there, and then I'm going to do everything I can do to deal with the issue. Now, just in case you're thinking, I'm not sure our beliefs affect us that much. Let me just throw out an example. So Doug and Susie. Doug likes to camp. Doug camps in style, by the way. But this time he's going to go a little bit more basic. So they're going to go up to Big Bear. Get up to Big Bear with the kids, and, and they get to the campsite, get the tent out. And then they see a big sign over there that says, Bears have been spotted. Put your food away. Hang it from the trees. And they say, Bears? Oh, yeah, it's a big bear. Okay, well... And so after the campfire that night, Doug, you all put everything in the containers. You latch it up as tightly as it can. They've provided ropes. You put on the rope. You, you pull it all the way up. It's out of reach of anything. And you get in the tent, and we're good. It's just us and the kids and their friends, and we're all in here. And then you hear it. You can hear it moving around. Hear it sniffing around. It gets closer it brushes up against the tent. Susie grabs Doug and shoves him by the tent door, you know, and, and, and you can, it's just raising the hair on the back of their necks. It's like, just waiting. And slowly the sniffing gets a little less and a little less. It's moving away. It's moving away, moving away. And finally gets far enough away. Doug says, okay, let me just, and he looks out the tent flap and right over there by the other campground is a Labrador retriever <laughs> just sniffing around the campsites. And it's like, oh, oh, my goodness. Hair on the back of the neck, heart pounding, clammy palms, scared to death. Think about that. Not by the reality, but what was believed to be the reality. It has that kind of power to affect us. Above all, guard your heart. We read it, your thoughts, because it determines the direction of your life. So that statement, worry about nothing, from the Philippians passage, from that same commentary, for translators, listen to this. Don't worry about anything is literally in nothing be anxious. The verb here has the negative sense of anxiety, a lack of trust in God's care. 
don't worry about anything is often expressed idiomatically. In other words, here's some, some hints for translators. For example, don't let your thoughts kill you or don't let your thoughts take away your strength. Centered in the thoughts, in the mind, your beliefs. So, if it can have that kind of effect, I want to read you these words from a preacher and writer named Robert Morgan. Listen to how he puts the issue. Stress and worry break us down. They are the unseen source of our headaches, backaches, heartaches, and bellyaches. They produce everything from obesity to obscenity, from constipation to diarrhea, from impatience to impotence. They give us knotted stomachs, sleepless nights, high blood pressure, low morale. They make our tempers short and our days long. They cause indigestion, irritation, chest pain, and muscle strain. You do not get stomach ulcers from what you eat, said one doctor. You get ulcers from what's eating you. Those who are extremely anxious, said John Calvin, himself prone to anxiety, wear themselves out and become their own executioners. Epictetus, the great Stoic philosopher, warned that we ought to be more concerned about removing wrong thoughts from the mind than about removing tumors and abscesses from the body. Powerful statement. So the question is obvious. How then do we change our beliefs? How do we move them from irrational to rational, healthy beliefs? Simple three-step process. First, first step is hard work. Second step is hard work. And you can guess the third step. Okay, the honest truth. How do we do it? Simply this. Face the lie with the truth. Identify where you're lying to yourself. Find what the truth is and then speak that in your mind until it becomes a way of thinking. So with that in mind, we go back to our poll with which we begin. I'm going to ask our media friends to put all six statements up on the screen. And I want to tell you this. Those statements with which you interacted at the beginning are all lies. They're all irrational thoughts. Meaning, the more you believe any one of these, the more you said strongly agree, or even if you put neutral, you're on some thin ice. I got a Chinese fortune cookie once that said, when skating on thin ice, your safety's in your speed. So get out of that way of thinking. Okay? So how do we do it? Well, let's just take these. I must have everyone's love and approval. That's a lie. You do not have to have everyone's love and approval to live a happy, healthy, balanced life. In fact, if that's what you believe, you will be overwhelmed with anxiety. And the key word is must. Must. Must is the word of addiction, not the word of choice or desire. If we change that, if the truth simply is, I love it when I get people's love and approval, but I don't always, and that's okay. In fact, Jesus didn't say beware a whole lot, but remember this one. He said beware when all people speak well of you. If everybody likes you, you don't stand for anything. Second one, in marriage, if it takes hard work, we must not be right for each other. I was reading a book on marriage. One chapter began by saying marriage takes hard work. Then it said, reread that sentence. Then it said, reread it out loud. Then it said, tattoo it to your forehead and look in the mirror and say it every morning of your life. <laughs> Marriage takes hard work. Why? Because any relationship of depth and closeness takes hard work. That's the truth. Tell yourself the truth. Third one, because I'm a Christian, God will protect me from pain and suffering. Really? 
I hope you understand that pulpits across America, one of the fastest growing movements within Christianity, preaches that every week. It's called the health and wealth gospel. If you are succeeding, if you're healthy and wealthy and wise, that's God's blessing on your life. If you're not, there's something wrong. Really? Well, how do you explain Job and Joseph and John the Baptist and Jesus himself? We need to tell ourselves the truth. It's my Christian duty to meet all the needs of others. Wow. Is our middle name omnipotent? It's not. So if we believe this, if I believe this, I'm sunk. If you believe it, you're sunk. In fact, most of us are sunk. There are a few that are not, and we're not sure we like you anyway. So, no, that was a joke. (laughs) No, we can't meet all the needs of everyone else. Impossible, nor should we try. A Christian doesn't feel angry, anxious, or depressed. If that's a belief that you hold, immerse yourself in the Psalms. Just immerse yourself in the Psalms and tell yourself the truth. And then that last one, God can't use me unless I'm spiritually strong. That's a lie. Do you want to know what the gospel truth is? Come straight out of Paul. When he says, when I am weak, then I am strong. Because God's strength is made perfect in my weakness. That's the truth. We must tell ourselves the truth because what we believe, the self-talk we have, forms so much about how we feel. And so, we strive to worry about nothing, to pray about everything, and to experience the peace of God. What's ironic, as I thought about it, is we end today in a very similar place that we ended last week, the serenity prayer. You know what the serenity prayer says? God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. Do you know what we want that to be? This. I don't need to change anything about what I think or believe. That's that's too hard. Courage to change the things I can. Let me put everything into changing my circumstances. And it doesn't work. The way to pray it is, God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. Most of the times it's that. The courage to change the things I can right here. And the wisdom to know the difference through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so as you go into your life this week, I hope that rolling around in your mind are the words of the wise man who said, above all, guard your heart, your thoughts, for out of it, comes the direction of your life. Gracious God, thank you. Bless us, guide us, encourage us, change us, and give us peace. In Jesus' name, amen. Find more podcasts, videos, church events, and how you can support the Loma Linda University Church at lluc.org.